Well, um, we're in this series called Better Decisions, Fewer Regrets. This is the fourth week of the series. And today I'm going to talk to you about the maturity question. But in order to do so, I have to talk to you about assumptions. How many of you have ever read the book, The Big Short by Michael Lewis? Maybe you saw the movie that came out in 2015. It's starring uh, some of these characters. Um, I, I, I want to be the guy on the far left, but I end up being not any of them <laughs> in the movie when I think about who I want to be in the movie. Uh, but The Big Short is an amazing movie because it has lots of assumptions in it. And it's a great book. Michael Lewis is a great writer. And there's two bad assumptions that are made. And the assumptions are centered around the 2008 financial crisis. And basically what happened, what we discovered is mortgage lenders and Wall Street banking firms assumed they could make risky bets packaging subprime mortgages into little groups and then they would resell those mortgages to other buyers that would take on that level of risk who assumed that they could keep doing it and seeing a profit from it. The second big assumption in this story in the 2008 financial crisis comes from home buyers who are finding themselves in very risky mortgages. How many of you have ever had a mortgage or currently have a mortgage? There's uh, fixed rate mortgages, which is like you pay that interest rate forever. And then there's arms, adjustable rate mortgage. And most of these faulty bad loans were adjustable rate mortgages. And how they work is they get you and they say, come on, we'll give you a mortgage, it's super low rate. And then all, after a few months, uh, they rate, or after a few years, they raise the rate to a number that is very hard to meet. And so what happened is all these people who ended up in these arm mortgages, when it came time to raise the rate, they're like, I assumed I could pay this and I cannot pay this. And the result was millions of people defaulted on their uh, 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 arms, they, uh, they, they defaulted on their adjustable rate mortgages, which caused the collapse of the banking system and Wall Street. And it was all built around these massive assumptions. Hey, we can pay this forever. Hey, we can make money off these people forever. And it, and it almost destroyed the, uh, the US economy for a number of years. Some of you lived through the financial, the 2008 financial crisis uh, as adults and you remember how tough that was there were moments when things looked really bleak and all of that is because of assumptions now how many people do you and I both know that have made bad decisions based on bad financial assumptions do we know it is my the only one uh, I'm not asking if you did it but if other people have made bad decisions based on financial there's a lot now, here's what we know about assumptions. There's three things. We all have them. We all make assumptions. They're our best guess, and they, we don't often examine them, but we ought to. Why? Well, there's right assumptions, and there's wrong assumptions. There's assumptions about everything, about money, about life, about people, about circumstances. And the problem with assumptions is that we don't know for sure. It's just our best guess. And this is why it's important to look at our assumptions. This is why we need to examine them, why we need to test them, because sometimes we're right about them and sometimes we're wrong. My wife, Nikki, 
is a scientist by trade. And before she got promoted and promoted and promoted again, she used to be in the laboratory. And she used to have a fun pencil. I used to imagine you had a pencil behind your ear. And you had the goggles, right? You had the goggles and the lab coat. Well, just don't ruin my image of you, okay? So when you were in the lab, and you'd be testing things in the lab, you would test your assumptions. She would test her assumptions using the scientific method because testing inherently means she was open to being right or wrong about her assumptions and what she was doing. And the point is this. We need to do the same thing with our lives. We need to be people who will open ourselves up and open ourselves up around our assumptions. We need to test our assumptions. If we test our assumptions, we can spot a bad opinion. If we test our assumptions, it makes us better decision makers. So, I've been talking about assumptions, and I want to talk to you today about what I believe is the most widely held, wrongly held assumption in all of human history, maybe. Okay? Maybe not. Maybe it's not the worst. Maybe there's a, bad, or a worse one that you can think of. Don't tell me now. Tell me later, quietly, over email. Um, you can reach me at Nicole at PacificCityChurch.com if you don't like it. So, um, and so here's the most widely held, under-examined, unexamined assumption of all time. Here it is. If it's not wrong, it's all right. If it's not illegal, yeah, it must be permissible. If it's not immoral, it's acceptable. If it's not over the line, eh, you know, well, must be fine. Must be fine. Now, if you can't see anything wrong with this assumption, put on your older brother or sister hat or put on your parent hat, regardless if you have any children. And would you ever say to a child, hey, go for it? It's not illegal. Would you ever say that to a child? Or would you ever say to a 16-year-old driver, uh, they grab the keys and they head out the door and they say, uh, bye, have a great time with your friends. And I just want to encourage you to go to the, go the maximum amount that the speed limit will allow. Have a good time with your friends. Bye. Bye. No, you would never do that. You would never say that. You would never set the bar that low for people that you love. So why would you set the bar that low for yourself? Am I tracking? Are you, am I, are you tracking with me? Um, the core assumption is basically asking this question. How low can I go? How close can I get to bad without being bad? How close to doing something wrong can I get without actually doing something wrong? Or if you're religious, how close can I get to sin without actually sinning? And we all know that the how low can I go question often leads us up to the very edge of the line, and then it becomes a new set of questions, which is how far over the line can I go? Like, how far over the line can I go without getting caught? How unethical can I be without creating a bad situation for myself? How long can I neglect my family, my business, my personal physical health without feeling the effects? How much can I indulge in an addictive behavior before I get addicted? And this is the definition of a slippery slope. And it all begins with asking the wrong question, which is, is there anything wrong with this? And you and I both know that when we start with the question, is there anything wrong with this, that usually leads to another question. How did I get myself into this? 
How did I get myself into this? This is why parents say to their kids, be careful. This is why they don't say, please, child, live as close to the edge as you can between right and wrong. It's why parents react whenever they see a toddler at the edge of a swimming pool. It's because here's a really, really super fun fact for you. Nobody is doing anything wrong until they are. Nobody is doing anything wrong until we actually are. Drawing our lines, setting our limits, establishing our standards on the borderline between right and wrong, legal and illegal, moral and immoral, healthy and unhealthy. This reduces our margin for error down to zero. Because if you make a mistake, you're done. It's a dangerous way to live because you're drawing your safe until you're drowning. You're sober till you're not sober. And in those moments, in those moments, in this little area of life, the need is not for more information. You don't need more information about how close you can get to right and wrong. It's not about how can we just change the way we're contemplating living on the edge here. The need in that moment, what do you think it is? It's the need for wisdom. Wisdom is very different conversation than the conversation about right and wrong. Wisdom is different. You need wisdom. Wisdom is the thing that you need with the options you have in your life right now. Some of you have a spending option. Some of you have a dating option on the table for you. Some of you have an honesty option with your spouse. Some of you have the ability to spend more time with someone of the opposite sex who isn't your significant other. And here's what we know. An option can be both not wrong and unwise at the same time. For those of you who grew up with siblings, there's a long historic game that is played that often leads to violence. And I had, I'm the oldest of four siblings, so there's a lot of like touching and teasing and stuff. And every once in a while, this one sibling would say to the other, stop touching me, do not touch me. And then there'd be too much arguing or whatever between the siblings and the parents would come in Joyce and Chris, that, that's my parents' names. And they would come in and they say something extraordinarily drastic that doesn't make any sense. You sound like a crazy person when you say, they go, that's it. Nobody touch anybody ever again in this house. So we're like, okay, the law has been set. Nobody's allowed to touch anybody. And so what happens? You know the game now, don't you? You know the game. I'm going to do it with you. It's the game where you go, I'm not touching you. I'm not touching you. And you're getting closer and closer, and, then, and, the, and the person's like, stop it. What? I'm not touching you. I'm not touching you. I'm not doing anything wrong. And here's what we know about that game. You can only play the I'm not touching you game with a sibling till you get slapped in the face, <laughs> till you get hit in the jaw. Somebody is going to catch it in the jaw, and someone is going to. But sometimes we live life like this game, I'm not touching you. I'm not touching you because I'm not doing the wrong thing. But certainly, when dealing with an older sibling, you're doing something extraordinarily unwise. But yet we live like this. This is how we live. 
We live this way all the time with all kinds of decisions. Sex, money, uh, all of them. I'm just talk about sex and money. Don't say, yeah. You see, right and wrong are not the same as wisdom, but they are very much connected. That brings us to today's question. Are you ready for the question of the day? It's the maturity question. What is the wise thing to do? Now, we're in good company because the Apostle Paul helped us to answer this question, and he based his teaching off of what Jesus said. And we did have it, it was already read to us by Kyra, lovely, you did a great job uh, reading. And it says this, in Ephesians 5, starting in verse 15, it says this, it says, Be very careful, then, how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Now, I'm going to unpack every little phrase in here because it's awesome, okay? First, I'd like you to see something. First, what we understand about Paul. Paul was a Pharisee, and then he became a follower of Jesus. This guy is a stickler for the rules. He loves right and wrong. In his entire life growing up, he knew the difference between right and wrong, and he wasn't afraid to tell people that. Even when he becomes a Christian, and he comes, starts to follow Jesus, and he, he lives his life under the grace of God, he still very, is, is very clear about sharing the rules with people. Throughout the New Testament, which he wrote most of, he would often say, this is the right thing to do, this is the wrong thing to do. He wasn't shy about telling you what is right and wrong. So in this moment, to these people, the Ephesians, the people who lived in Ephesus, he does something different. He could have given them a massive list of right and wrong things to do, something that he has done before in the past. But instead, what does he do? He says, be wise. Do not live as unwise, but as wise. Well, why does he do that? Well, we get a hint in his second statement. He says, making the most of every opportunity. Well, what does this mean? Well, literally, the phrase, making the most of every opportunity, if you were to go back and look at it in the original language, the language in which the Bible was written in Greek, uh, this literally meant redeeming the time. Redeeming your time. Let me ask you a personal question. Do you ever wish you could go back and invest and reclaim the time you wasted making bad decisions? I do, and I appreciate whoever said yes, you and me. And what if you had the opportunity and go back and invest that time in life-giving activities? Imagine where you'd be today. Imagine how things might be different for you. And while we're daydreaming, imagine how much money you would have saved. Sorry to bring that up. But Paul isn't talking or encouraging you to live in the past. Paul is inviting you to invest your time wisely in the present. And you can't change the past, but you can make the most of every opportunity that you have right now. And that is the invitation of Paul. The invitation of Paul is fueled by wisdom. He's saying, be careful rather than be careless. And also, we see that Paul uses this phrase, we are living in evil days. We're living in evil days. Evil days. What I love about the ancient wisdom of the Bible is that what was going on and what was true for Paul in Paul's day is still true today. He's saying what you and I both know to be true about culture. We live in a culture today. You're going to leave here and you're going to step into that culture. 
You live in a culture today that uses every tool at its disposal to lead you to make bad decisions and have unhealthy appetites. Trouble is always a click away. Committing to the wrong things is always an option. We don't live in a morally neutral environment. We pretend like it's morally neutral out there, but it's not. There are forces. There are forces out there that are against us, that aren't for us. Most Americans are overweight and overleveraged. We eat too much and we spend too much. And there is a temptation around every corner. And what Paul's saying here is, listen, if we don't pay attention, if we aren't careful, we will end up paying the price. If we aren't intentionally cautious, we end up, we may end up in a place that we didn't want to be in. If we don't filter our choices through the maturity question, we will probably face some sort of consequences and we will say things like woulda, coulda, shoulda. To say it crassly, my wife and I still own a home in Columbus, Ohio uh, and we rent it out to some lovely people. Lovely, I wish them the best. As long as they pay on the first of the month. <laughs> and before we left that house, we had a beautiful, would you call it a beautifully manicured lawn? It was what? <laughs> Just green grass, always perfectly cut. It, like it was like a golf course. And by that, I mean sometimes there weren't brown patches. But anyway, there was moments where it was green and beautiful. And we used to have this dog named Kingsley, and we used to let Kingsley out uh, to do his business. And the idea is, you know, when you have a dog and you let a dog outside to do his business, if you're not careful where you walk, you're going to step in it. And, if it's, and what's worse is you will bring it in the house. It is the same issue here. We must be wise or you're going to drag things into the house of your life in lots of bad ways. So, Paul's writing to the Ephesians. He's writing to us today. And in verse 17, he tries to give us a wake-up call. He says, Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Literally, he's saying, don't be a fool. Don't put your head in the sand and pretend like our culture is morally neutral. There are bad ideas and bad characters who are trying to influence you in bad ways. Don't be a fool. You know what's out there. You know it's possible for you. Don't be a fool. Wake up and smell the coffee. Wake up. So why does Paul use the phrase, understand God's will? It's interesting, right? Um, how many of you took a foreign language in college? You didn't take a foreign language? Okay, cool. Other people took a foreign language. I took Spanish uh, a few times. <laughs> And uh, once, when I was a sophomore, I had to drop out. I had to ask the professor if I could drop the class passing because I did not understand what was going on in the class. I didn't understand the words that were coming out of her mouth. And I didn't understand at all what was going on. And luckily, when I met with the professor uh, to ask if I could withdraw passing, she had that conversation in English, and I was able to, I was able to drop out. The idea of understanding is interesting here. Why didn't Paul say, 
discover God's will. Why didn't he say, obey the will of the Lord? Why did he use the word understand? Well, if you were to go do a deep dive, which I have done on your behalf, if you were to look at the Greek in the original context, Paul is urging his listeners and his readers to face up to what they already know he ought, they ought to do. Face up to what you already, you need to understand, face up to what you already know you ought to do. Um, would it be possible for me to get a volunteer from the, from the room right now? If just, I won't hurt you or embarrass you. I'm, it's going to embarrass me. Is anyone willing to stand up? We got one right here. here like, oh, we got the matching man. So basically, this is going to be super brief. You're going to, and so basically what Paul is doing is he's picking us up by the collar. You've got beautiful eyes. <laughs> he's picking us up by the collar and he's saying, look at me, understand, wake up, stop playing games. Stop playing games. You know what you ought to do. Now do it. Stop it. Just stop. Oh man, I'm lost in your eyes. But I'm, you have to stop. You have to stop doing it. Can you give him a hand? That's all. <laughs> Quit pretending. Quit rationalizing. Do what you already know you ought to do. You can play games like you didn't know the answer, but, you, but don't. Don't do that anymore. Embrace the answer. Now, we know the sad part for a lot of people is people don't embrace the answer they know they're supposed to embrace until it's their only option that they have left. For instance, we all know people that have waited too long after they've gotten a very negative health diagnosis. And you and I both have friends who have made massive health changes overnight because they got a bad health diagnosis. They had the whatever, the clogs, the lumps, the shortness of breath, and all the things, the things with the things, because they refused to acknowledge the problem for years. And a health diagnosis can lead to major changes like right away. But why do we wait? Why do we wait with health diagnoses? Why, what, why do we wait for that? Think of Paul's words. We wait because we're unwilling to face up to what we already have known all along. And when we quit lying to ourselves, it's amazing what happens. Everyone I know who's gone through a health transformation, and maybe you haven't seen in a while, and then you see them, you're like, wow, you look great, what are you doing? And they, should, they, they say the same thing. We all know what they say. Do you know what they say, right? They say, I should have made these changes years ago. I should have made these changes a long time ago. Translation, for years, I refused to face up to what I knew was true in my heart. I just didn't do it. You know, health can make that effect on us. You know what else can have an effect on us? Bankruptcy can have that effect. Crushing credit card debt can have that effect. A surprise pregnancy can have that effect. A letter from your spouse's attorney, a DUI, a trip to the detox with one of your friends, and perhaps that's what it will take for you, but I hope not. Here's what I know. There is something out there somewhere that has the ability to get your attention, that has the ability to 
force you to face up to what you already know to be true. I just hope that it doesn't go that far for you. And I certainly hope that it doesn't go that far for me. So why let things go that far? Why not face up in our hearts to what we already know to be true? Why not ask the question, what is the wise thing to do? So in order to do this, I want to give you another question that will help you as you ask, what is the wise thing to do? That's a very general question, right? But there's three ways to look at it. It's through our past, our present, and our future. And the question goes like this. In light of my past experience, my current circumstances, and my future hopes and dreams, what is the wise thing for me to do? Now, when you have a decision that you need to make, or you're forced with some sort of crossroads in your life where you will have to make a decision that's unclear, Get away from, is this right or wrong? Get away from, is this permissible or not permissible? Instead, get more into this question, light of my past circumstances, my past experience, my present circumstances, and my future hopes and dreams, what's the wise thing for me to do? What do I mean? Well, first, the past. There's an old saying that those who do not remember the past are condemned to repeat it. Uh, your past predisposes you to specific temptations, addictions, attractions, blind spots. You are a sucker for something, right? You're a sucker for something. I don't know what it is, but you're a sucker for something. And what's okay for everybody else might be off limits to you. And what some friends may consider a pastime may be something that is destructive for you. There are activities that others find it easy to walk away from while you are prone to overindulge. So in every decision, in every invitation, in every opportunity that comes your way, you need to filter it through an understanding of your past. Let your past speak to you and guide you. I know it's painful, but it will be helpful. That's your past. Let's talk about your present. Your current circumstances. You know, I gotta say this life is seasonal. And what you're experiencing right now, this will not last forever for you. I believe that. And here's a piece of wisdom for you that's been helpful for me. I'm not that old, but it's been helpful for me. This too shall pass. This too shall pass. Your current romantic situation, or lack thereof, shall pass. Your current financial situation or lack of money, this too shall pass. Your current pressures that you face at work, this too shall pass. And so here's the deal. You owe it to yourself and you owe it to the people you love to take your current emotions, the emotions you feel right now, your state of mind and your perspective into account when you're making decisions. What do I mean? I know that most of the apologies that I give, most of my apologies, they stem from my propensity to react in the moment. Okay? So when the moment has passed, I discover uh, that I've overreacted, that maybe I've hurt somebody in the process. I don't know how many emails you wish you could unsend, but I wish I could send out, unsend at least one email, one or two. I'm just kidding. I have thousands of emails I wish I could unsend. 
I wish I could rewrite. But if I had waited 24 hours, my response, my tone might have been different. I, maybe I would have done less damage. And when I'm mad, sometimes the wise thing for me to do is nothing. I shouldn't do anything. And sometimes the wise thing for you to do is just wait. Sometimes the very best thing that you can do in your, the middle of your emotionally charged, unresolved, difficult, hard to see what the future might be circumstances is to do nothing. Sometimes you wait, you defer, you pause, you postpone, you sit one out. To give you a real example, um, if you're married and you get divorced, or if you're in a long-term relationship, sometimes the best idea is not to jump back in and start dating right away. Not that you've done anything wrong by dating someone right away, but sometimes it's good to pause. Sometimes it's good to pause before you jump back in. Not that you've done something wrong, but it would be potentially unwise, because maybe there's some healing that has to happen with you. Um, so that's the present. So how about the future? Future hopes and dreams. Some of you have an idea of what your future will look like, what it could look like. You have a mental picture of your preferred future, what it could be and should be. The problem is, is that life is hard. Life is hard on our dreams, particularly our preferred future. How do I know? Well, you've watched it happen. You've watched it happen to others that you love and you care about. You've watched friends undermine their financial dreams. You've watched a friend or a family member sabotage a relationship from alcohol abuse. You've watched people you love make terrible romantic decisions that led to other decisions that have resulted in the trajectory and the course of their life being changed forever. You probably know someone who was dishonest and lost their career. And we all know someone whose infidelity costs them their marriage. And so what happens? When we get clear on our preferred future, we're reminding ourselves of the goal, the vision of what we hope to be. And it can protect us from selling ourselves on things. We sell ourselves all the time. We say, hey, I'm not doing anything wrong. People do it all the time. I'm not hurting one. I can handle it. There's no law against it. Or we say things like, you know what? Don't worry about it. God will forgive me. And the goal of putting our future in perspective is that it isn't to stop you from doing something wrong. It's to keep you from doing something unwise. Putting your future in the front of you can help you understand if a decision is unwise. Are we clear? Does that make sense? And this leads us to the maturity decision, the decision I hope every single one of you make today, and it is this. It is the maturity decision, I will do the wise thing. Don't settle for good. Don't settle for legal or permissible. Don't settle for non-prosecutable or tolerable, or even normal, ask the question, in light of my past experience, your future, excuse me, your current circumstances and your future hopes and dreams, what is the wise thing to do? Now, at the beginning of this talk, I talked about how sometimes we make decisions and we end up asking the question to ourselves, how did I get myself into this? And I'm so grateful that we follow a God who is with us, even in the middle of us saying and doing things that we regret. 
You see, God has always been with us since the very beginning. Even before we loved him, he loved us. And he understood that we needed help. We didn't have the ability to break our bad decision cycle on our own. We needed a God who would step in for us. And the Bible says that while we were still making bad decisions, Jesus laid down his life for us and took on the real problem of humanity, which is the problem of sin, the problem that each of us has in our hearts. And so what we do is that we, we do what the writer of Hebrews says we should do. And I'm going to put it on the screen. It says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. When, Jesus, when it says that Jesus, for the joy set before him, you know how we talked about our future hopes and dreams? That's Jesus lining up his future hopes and dreams, saying, I'm going to stay focused. I'm going to go to the cross. He made the wise decision there. But he did not only just made the wise decision for himself. He had our future hopes and dreams in mind when he did that. And he, on behalf of us, he took on the problem of sin and he defeated it. And so for every single person who turns to him, every single person who turns to him, they can receive forgiveness and healing and freedom. The verses say that we shouldn't grow weary or lose hope because we follow a savior who has done everything possible to make it right on our behalf. And we've had this saying that we've been saying at the end of each talk, um, and it is this, Jesus died, so I don't have to fill in the blank anymore. Jesus died while I was unwise, so I don't have to make unwise decisions anymore. Jesus died for my past, so I don't have to have a cloudy present or an undetermined future. Jesus died for my past to save my future. Jesus died so that we can live free and we can make better decisions. Amen? Why don't we all stand?